following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we thank you for all these things happening. Thank you for these new births, Lord, and just blessing us with children. We know your word talks about great blessing that they are. Lord, a great challenge, but even in that, Lord, you bless us as you train and teach us and sanctify us through them. I pray for these couples, these families who have, Lord, had these new little ones in their home and pray, God, that you would give them strength and wisdom. Help us as a body to come alongside them. Thank you, too, for your word, which you've given us such a wonderful privilege that we have your word. You have not been silent. You have not left us to wonder what you desire, who you are, but you have told us clearly, and we thank you for that. And I pray, God, as we look to Psalm 1 this morning, that you would encourage and motivate, move us to have a greater desire to know and follow, understand, and seek your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is 2014, and with the coming of the new year, many across this country are now participating in a well-known tradition, which is known as what? A New Year's resolution. That's right. Most surveys show that about half of Americans actually make a resolution, at least one resolution. And what do you guys think are among probably the most popular or common of resolutions? Quit smoking. I heard that one. Yeah. Most it's related to health, right? Either to lose weight, to exercise more, to eat better, to give up a bad habit, right? There's a reason health clubs are packed in January. In fact, my family, I think, has added four new memberships to Burbank Athletic Club this year. But the health is one of the things, if you look at all the surveys, that's one that shows up near the top of every one of them. Another popular resolution is to improve finances, either to lower debt to, uh, to, to save money, to find a better job. Uh, some make resolutions in the area of education, uh, wanting to, uh, to resolve to learn something new in the coming year, or to read more books, or to take classes, or to train for a different career, perhaps. Others make resolutions regarding relationships, or taking a trip, or trying a new hobby, or many other things that, that people at the beginning of the year, it's like there's a clean slate, and they want to really attempt and work at something important in their life. But then not long after January 1st, there's another well-known American tradition, which is the breaking of those resolutions. In fact, about one in four quit their resolution after the first week. True. One in three uh, don't make it past the first month. Less than half actually make it past six months. And less than 10% keep their resolution for a full year. Right? We, you know, after a few months, many of us in these resolutions, you know, people stop going to workouts, they pitch their diet, they go back to smoking, they drop the class, they quit the new hobby, they stop saving money, or whatever else they've resolved to do. Their motivation, their desire tends to peter out. And, and why is that? Why is that? Why? You know, many of these resolutions are good things, right? Exercise, improving your financial situation, uh, you know, a new hobby. These are things that are, that are good. Why do people have struggle with the determination to stick it out? Usually the problem isn't the resolution itself, 
but often it is the motivation, right? The more compelling the motivation, then the more likely you are to keep the resolution. Right? Like Dave. Dave, since you're here, I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> My turn this week. Hey, if I uh, you know, gave you a million bucks to uh, read through the Bible this year, you think you'd be motivated enough to do that? I think so. Yeah, I would, right? Or if somebody offered you a million dollars to read five books a month, or to take up a, a new hobby, or to memorize a thousand verses, would you do it? Be honest. I think so. That'd be a, a motivation to do that. Well, one of the resolutions that the elders are encouraging, we're not offering a million bucks, by the way, for this, but one of the re- uh, resolutions the elders are encouraging us as a church this year is to read through the Bible together for the year. And that is, uh, you know, this week I think we should be aware. Genesis 15, that's right. Actually, today I think 18 is where we're supposed to be. But this is a good resolution, isn't it? Isn't this a good thing, a profitable thing to be focused on? This is something we all should determine this year. And yet, how many times have we made this kind of a resolution? I mean, I've done it too, where we were, okay, I'm read the Bible this year. And then you get to Leviticus or, or Numbers and you start, you know, it drops off. Again, it's happened to me. How many of us fall in those statistics where we don't even make it for the month or uh, the six months and we give up? Again, the key is the motivation. For if we had the right motivation, that would carry us a long way to reading the Bible through. And so this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 1. We'll be looking at this psalm because it will give us that motivation. It describes things that will move us to read God's Word. And more than that, we'll talk about it to to meditate on it. So please stand as I read Psalm 1. The psalm says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thank you. Well, this psalm, it's located at the beginning of the book of Psalms. It's often called the threshold or gateway to the Psalms. And it was probably placed here because it really does serve as a good introduction to this book. Because in this Psalm, the poet lays out essentially two paths, only two paths that exist in the course of this life. There's the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And here the psalmist lays out those two paths. And notice that the Psalm begins with the words that will focus our attention on the motivation to know God's word. He says, how what? How blessed. That's actually one word in Hebrew, and it carries the idea of a happy, fortunate, uh, enjoying favorable circumstances, to be envied. It's the idea of uh, when you see a person's blessed life, or when people see a person's blessed life, they say, I want to be like that guy. And that isn't, isn't that really what, what we all want? in life is to be blessed to have peace and joy regardless of circumstances to have victory over sin and personal struggles to have contentment in this life no matter what is going on around us 
Don't we all want to be able to endure when hard times come? Don't we all want to know what to do in any given situation, no matter what circumstances bring? Well, this psalm describes the very answer to those things, and it's all connected to the Word of God. This morning, we're going to focus our attention primarily on the first three verses and the righteous, because it talks about within them a focus on the Scriptures We're going to see in those first three verses the pursuit of the righteous in verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 3, the prize of the righteous. Verses 1 and 2 describe this pursuit of the righteous, and and they really describe it. He describes it as two sides of the same coin, what the righteous shuns and what they seek, what they flee from and what they run to, what they avoid and what they look for. And as we look in verse 1, we see what they shun. Notice there, it says, How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, man here doesn't just mean adult males, but everyone, it applies to everyone. What he's saying here is there's three parallel phrases which he uses to show how the righteous man or woman or boy or girl shuns evil. Firstly, they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, what does walk mean there? It's a metaphor describing how one lives life. He says here that they behave, how they make decisions, how they conduct themselves. They choose not to follow the counsel. That is the advice of the wicked. The wicked in Scripture refers to those who are guilty of disbelieving God, of taking advantage of others, of ignoring or rebelling against God's commands. And the psalmist says here, the righteous one doesn't allow the advice or the the counsel, the input of the wicked to affect or impact their behavior. The righteous refuse to listen to those who counsel them to deceive or to look at the pretty girl or the hot guy or to watch an immoral movie or to listen to a foul song. They don't take the advice of those who say to take revenge on that person or cheat on your spouse or disobey your parents. I would ask you, is there anybody in your life, give this serious thought, is there anyone among your family or your friends who encourages you to do these kinds of things? Well, don't follow their advice. No matter how logical they may make it sound, no matter how much they play it down or or make these things seem like it's no big deal, it's just a little thing. The second way the righteous person shuns evil is by not standing in the path of sinners Here, path, again, it refers to lifestyle. The righteous person doesn't closely associate with those people who are characterized by sinning against God. And the word stand here actually isn't the the idea of just standing still, but rather it's the idea of remaining or continuing on a path. This begs the question again that we all need to think about. Who do you hang out with? What path are you on? Who else is on that path? Are they people who are prone to sinful behavior, who don't care about authority, who get into trouble, who tempt you to sin? The psalmist here is saying, look, if you want to be blessed in life, then don't follow them. Don't be a part of their group. This applies not just to our youth, right? We often are telling our kids, don't hang out with those folks. But, you know, it's a fallacy to think that peer pressure only happens in junior high or high school, right? Right? I think it's even stronger in our adult life. I've had more struggles with peer pressure after high school than I did in high school. When I became a Christian, in fact, in college, I had to walk away from those I had been associating with because they were only encouraging me to remain in the sinful lifestyle that God had saved me out of. 
You know, I tell them I'd become a Christian. They say, well, that's cool. You got religion, dude. Let's party. That's what they would do. And you may be in that same place. I've known many people over the years, especially new believers, who continued to struggle with their old sins simply because they kept associating with those who enticed them to sin. I remember a guy in college who got saved. On a, he was in a pretty uh, rough fraternity, and, and he was encouraged to stay in there and be a witness for Christ. And that poor guy suffered and suffered until finally he got out and moved in an apartment, and then he flourished. He did go back and share the gospel with his buddies, but living there just kept him enslaved. Now you may feel, well, I, I can't sever any of my relationships because I want to be a testimony for Christ and share Christ with them. But I would ask you, what kind of impact do you think you're having on them if all they see you is doing what you used to do before? Any who lead you down the path of sinful behavior should not be your closest friends, right? Didn't Paul tell us, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. We tell our kids again, don't hang out with the wrong crowd. That applies to us too. The end of verse 1 shows the third way the righteous shuns evil is that he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, the scoffer is the person who uh, is not only giving wicked advice, not the person who is also characterized by a sinful life, but he or she is also one who openly mocks God and his word. It's the person that Paul spoke of in Romans 1.32 where they not only uh, participate in wicked behavior, but they give hearty approval to others also who do. 2 Peter 3.3 describes them this way. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers, scoffers, scorners, will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. Nah, nah, nah. That's the idea of, I don't care what God says. You believe that stuff? You're an idiot. Spurgeon said of them, the seat of the scorner may be very lofty, but it is very near to the gate of hell. Let us flee from it. And this third way that's described here in verse 1 is of the most serious For the first was simply following the advice of the wicked. The second was in pursuing the lifestyle of sinners. But this third one is to sit or to dwell, to give your time to those who openly rebel and mock God. But the one who desires a blessed life flees from any consistent involvement with those who would lead them to sin. Now again, don't get me wrong. This is not saying, I am not saying that the Lord is telling us to retreat completely out of the world. What is it that Jesus told us in Matthew 5? That we are to be, I'll give you a hint, salt and light, right? We are to be a testimony. We are to be an example. We are to proclaim the gospel. But don't put yourself in tempting circumstances in order to do that. There are many ways that you can witness to those who don't know Christ without being in a situation that would tempt you. Another thing we have to be wary of in this day and age is that the the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, they don't have to be physically present to influence us to sin, do they? What was Jim Stone reading from a little earlier this morning? He had, had an iPad, right? Our handheld devices, our TVs, our computers, our phones. These are all means and avenues in which, if we are not careful, we can be under the influence of the ones that the psalmist speaks of here. So I'd ask you a question. What is on your iPod? What is it that you look at 
on your computer? What do you listen to? What do you watch on your TV? Do the things that you read or watch or listen to, do those things encourage you or endorse that which God says is evil? Do they encourage you to do those things which God says not to do? Again, the righteous shuns anything, anything that is against or antithetical to God's word. They will not give a place for it in their life. And that's because verse 2 tells us their passions lie elsewhere. Look there where the psalmist says, but emphatic, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Again, the Hebrew here for but is a strong adversative. That is that it gives an emphatic contrast. The righteous are not simply defined by what they're running away from, but they're more so defined by what they are pursuing. Rather than allowing themselves to be enticed by sin, they have a zeal for something else, something better. Rather than listening to the counsel of the wicked, they seek instruction and counsel from the Lord. Rather than subjecting themselves to people or situations that entice the fleshly desires, they want to know God's ways. Rather than spending time pursuing evil, they spend it pursuing truth. And notice verse 2, it gives here two characteristics of the righteous person and their pursuit. What's the first one there? To, what is it? Their delight is in the law of the Lord, right? Law here has a general idea of a guideline, an instruction, command, a direction. The word can be used to define a, a single command or instruction. It can refer to the Torah as a whole, the first five books of the Bible, or it can often refer to the whole Bible, everything that God has said, all that he has instructed. And I think that's the idea here in this psalm. All the instruction that we have through God's word. And what does it say about the godly person and his or her attitude towards God's instruction? Again, they what? They delight in it. You can talk. It's okay. The recording won't capture you. It just captures my voice. Yeah, they delight in it. What does that mean? What does it mean to delight in something? Enjoy it? To desire it? To want it? To have an emotional connection to it? This word carries that connotation of an emotional delight. To do what is pleasing. It is your passion. And what is it that it says here that the righteous are passionate about? God's book. God's book. And it's not simply a delight in studying it but also in walking in it. Because remember the contrast that he's presenting here in this psalm. In verse 1, he says, the the righteous don't conduct their lifestyle. They don't walk in a certain manner, go down a certain path. Rather, they delight in the law of the Lord, meaning they delight in knowing, following, observing it. And beloved, this one trait, this one trait really distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. It sets apart the true believer from the false. It identifies the genuine child of God from one who isn't. In fact, listen to the testimony of what other believers have expressed about the word. Jim read earlier from David's a testimony in Psalm 19 where David said, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Or Job said this in Job 23, 12. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And this was after the affliction that came upon Job. 
Or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, 16 said, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Paul said in Romans 7, 22, I, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. 1 Peter 2, 2 encourages us to long for the pure milk of the word like newborn babes. And then there's Psalm 119. Listen to its author. He says in verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches. Your testimonies also are my delight. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. And in verse 140, your word is pure, therefore your servant loves it. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. Now this chapter, Psalm 119, is one of the most extensive on the word of God. And do you get the feeling or the, the tone? Is, the, is the, the, the situation there? Is the psalmist is describing the word? Is he talking about it like some book that he's got all these rules that he's supposed to follow? And, well, we've got to do these things. Is that the attitude that comes across? What is his feeling about God's instruction? How has it impacted him? And all of these folks from the scripture that I read about. They... They love what God has told them. There is a passion and a, and a desire to know God through what he has said. It's not some dry drudgery that they have to, like, I got it. Well, we're supposed to read the Bible this year. So like, what's my thing this week? All right, let me get those chapters over with. No, there's a, there's a passion in here. Now, does this sound like speech that's just reserved for only the most holy among us? Are these words confined to just those who are spiritual giants? Would only the rarest of believers experience such emotion and passion for God's word? I mean, how could the word of God be such a delight? Well, if you think about it, what are those situations where we get excited about it? I mean, think if you had a a rich family member who, you know, left you an estate in their will, would you not be excited to read that will? Would you not read with eagerness an article the day after the big game that uh, talks about your team's great victory? Sorry, Chiefs fans. What what would emotions what emotions would you have? Sorry, what emotions would you have if you're opening a letter from a college that you'd applied to that you really wanted to get into, or a letter from a job that you had just interviewed for that you really wanted to get? You see, the delight in reading the scripture is found in considering the one who wrote it. This is God's message. God's message to us. It's it's like receiving a, a letter from one that you dearly love. You know, I have a drawer in my bedroom, my nightstand. There's a drawer underneath it. And in that drawer, I keep notes and cards from my wife. Here's one that Tina gave me. When we were dating, in fact, it was just a week, week after we started dating. I still have it. Now, there's a, another one I brought that was uh, one that she wrote to me around Valentine's Day this year. No, I'm not going to read them. They're just for me. <laughs> but, you know, she 
I see over the years since we dated, we'd leave notes in my pocket or uh, when we got married under my pillow or in my lunch. And, and when, when I would see these notes, you know, I noticed her handwriting was on them. I, I wouldn't just glance at it and then throw them to the side. No, I would, I would take these letters, and, and I still do, and I carefully read it. And I put it in my pocket so that I can read it again later. Now, why, why do that? Why do I respond this way? Why, why do I give her notes, her letters, such scrutiny? Is it because I'm, oh, wow, look at how straight she wrote these letters. Man, she's got neat handwriting. Man, the diction on here, the vocabulary is wonderful. I like the color of this ink, too. It's really, I mean, is that, is that why I'm so focused and attentive to these notes that she gives me? Is that what brings me desire to read them? No, the the words on this page matter to me because of who wrote them. I delight in these words because I delight in her. I'm passionate for what she has written because she wrote it. And she wrote it to me. He wrote this to us. Is that how you feel about his book? His letter, if you will. If you will. Can you cry out with the psalmist? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. God, you've written this this letter for me, to me. Do you long for those times in the Bible? Do your desires dwell there or are they more on the, the bland things of this life? It's going to a game or seeing a movie or eating at a favorite restaurant or taking a vacation. All things that are fine to do, but do those things excite you more and time alone with God. Would you be more eager to win that big lottery than having the treasure of Scripture? You know, what was that big one that uh, was a week or two ago? It was a 600-something million dollars. I was reading about this week that one of the two people won it. And one of the guys, the second guy that won it, didn't know for like a week or two. Because he was out on vacation. He got home. First night he, night he gets home, it hits him in the middle of the night. I might have the ticket. So he, he leaps out of bed, and he goes to check his dresser. There it is, right on the dresser. Psalm 119.14 says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches. Cultivating this passion for God's word, that will move you to stick with the resolution. That will move you to set time aside, to read it, to spend time in it, to study it, to apply it, to try to understand it. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, this sounds great on paper. And I don't think anybody, I hope nobody in this room would say, well, that, that, I don't really want a passion for the Bible. I don't, you know, I'd rather do something else. I think most of us would say, that is what I want. I want to delight in his word. I want to pursue it and love it, just like the ones we've been reading about and hearing about. But, but how does we get there? How do you cultivate a passion for the word of God? That's the big question. And the first answer to that is you must be saved. You, you must know the author. It's like if, if I received a letter from somebody else, somebody I didn't know, I'm not going to treat it with the same delight and motivation and desire to read it as I would one from my wife. It wouldn't have the same effect on me, right? Only her letters will bring me such delight. And in the same way, you won't delight in what God has had to say if you don't know him. If he's not your father. True passion for God's word comes from a relationship with the one who wrote it. 
What is it Jesus said in John 10, 27, where he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Why do the sheep follow him? Because they recognize his voice, and they desire to walk towards it. He says there, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. If you know and love the Lord, you will desire his voice as you hear it through his word. Just as we heard from Jeremiah earlier in Jeremiah 15, 16, where he said, Your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. And listen, he says, For I have been called by your name. That's why they were a joy and delight to his heart. He is one of God's children. And he longed to hear from his father. His word is a delight to those who are his. You know, when I got saved, I had this insatiable appetite to read this book, to know it, to, to understand it. I wanted to get, I got my hands on any book I could that talked about the Bible. I listened to sermons from those who were passionate about the Word of God. But such hasn't always been the case. I have to admit, there have been many times in my life, even recently, where my delight has been dulled. Any of you identify with that? Those times where it's just dry. My heart's dried up. Maybe you're there now. The question is, how, how do we cultivate this kind of passion, desire, delight for the Word? Well, first, remind yourself that God's Word brings you the gospel of grace. Again, this isn't a rule book or a handbook for life. This is a correspondence and a communication from our Creator, our holy and just and loving Creator who desires that we turn from our sins so that we may have fellowship with Him. This book is from Him. We need to remind ourselves that it is a book which communicates God's wonderful plan to save sinners. It is a book which describes the redemption and the salvation that we don't have to earn, that we cannot earn, because it is by God's grace. And as we look to this book, it is a book of grace. It is a book that shows us we can't meet God's standard. Even as Christians, we can't do it on our own. And it reminds us of that, not so that we would be defeated, but it reminds us of that so that we would look to His grace. And that will be a great encouragement to you to continue to pursue it. It is only in this book that we can see Jesus. Second, and this may sound obvious, but it's important to cultivate a delight in his word. Pray. Ask God for it. In fact, I have written right on the opening uh, page on the inner cover of my Bible, verse 18 from Psalm 119. It was a prayer. The, the, The poet who wrote the psalm had many prayers in that psalm regarding asking God to help him desire his word. He said in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I'd encourage you, write that verse at the very first page in your Bibles so that when you open it, look at that and let it remind you, Father, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Do you think that is a prayer God might be interested in answering? I think so. Thirdly, one other thing is get around those who have a passion for seeking God through his word. And that's what's kind of fun about this, us reading through the Bible together. I've noticed several conversations I've already been in, which have been talking about you know, where we're at. We were at uh, Emmanuel Yucalano's funeral yesterday, and it, the subject came up. We were talking about things we've been reading. 
My, my youngest daughter, Bree, has been quizzing me on the reading, in fact. She asked me the other day, okay, Dad, so who built Babel? I got that one right. But then she asked me who his dad was. Oh, um, but it's fun. And it's a way to, to stir our hearts to want to continue on. And we need to be around those who are spending time in his word. And that will kindle a passion for it. Psalm 119.63 says, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Another great way is to get around those who love the word is to read biographies of those who love the word. Dawson Trotman, George Mueller, known as a man of prayer. He was a man of the word. John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. And listen to sermons from those who have a passion for the scripture. It's infectious. And last but not least, to kindle a desire, a delight in the word of God, spend time in it. Spend time in it. If you are feeling particularly dry, I would encourage you, focus your time initially on Psalm 119. And read through that each day and, and think about and consider what's being said. Or Psalm 139, Psalm 145, Isaiah 40. These are all great chapters to, to start and to, to look at and concentrate on to cultivate a delight in the Scriptures because they all present the glory and majesty and beauty of God. And they will ignite in you a hunger for His Word. Now, we need to be clear about one thing, though, on this. Spending time in the Bible doesn't just mean reading it, right? Reading it is necessary and important. But look at the end of verse 2 in Psalm 1. What does he say there? The blessed person delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That's more than just reading. The root meaning of meditate here is the idea of to moan or to mutter. It's used of a dove's cooing or the low growl of a lion. Often the scripture would be read aloud rather than just read silently. Psalm 119 verse 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. And this idea of meditation isn't the Eastern approach, which is to empty one's mind. It's the biblical approach to fill it, to fill it with God's thoughts. When we approach the scriptures, we are doing more than taking in information from a textbook, right? We're doing more than simply reading a story like we would a fiction novel. Rather, we are dwelling, we are to be dwelling upon the words that are given there to make every effort to know what they mean and how to apply them to life. And notice here in this psalm, notice in verse 2, how often does he say we are to meditate on it? Right? Get 10 minutes in in the morning, you're good. For those of you super spiritual ones, add another 10 minutes in the afternoon. Now, what does he say? It's day and night, right? Day and night. It's like the, what Paul had to say in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 regarding prayer. The characteristic of the righteous is that they pray only at 6 a.m. I know what does he say? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And in prayer, we speak our words to God. In meditation, we speak God's word to ourselves. It's more than some thought for the day. It is a constant immersion in what God has instructed us. It's the preoccupation of your mind and heart. Paul said it this way in Colossians 3.16 when he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it permeate your soul. Let it continually be in your thoughts and in your desires. And as you do that, as you spend time in focusing and dwelling upon the word, your desires move towards aligning with it and desiring to dwell on it. Because our desires follow what we dwell on, right? 
What we think about a lot attracts our attention, attracts our affection. John Piper, uh, as he was uh, preaching on this psalm, he made this very important observation. He said this, nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of duty. Nobody stands in the way of sinners out of duty. Nobody sits in the seat of scoffers out of duty. We walk and stand and sit there because we want to. And we want to because we've been watching them so intently that what they do now is attractive. We have meditated on them without calling it that. And we now delight in them. And that is how worldliness happens. You just start by looking at the stuff that the world produces. And you look at it and think about it so much that you want it. That's why the contrast in verse 2 refers not to duty and obedience, but to delight and meditation. He goes on to say, The point is that the only hope against the pleasures of the world is the pleasures of the word. Just like the pleasures of the world are awakened by looking at them long enough, so the pleasures of the world, the word are awakened in the regenerate soul by looking at them long enough, day and night. Again, the obvious question, how do you do that? What does that look like to meditate on his word day and night? Well, some of the things I said earlier, all the things I said earlier about cultivating a passion for his word would apply here. But in addition to those, also consider, you know, plan a time each day in the word. Actually have it in your schedule. What's that expression? If you don't uh, plan, if you don't... If you fail to plan, then plan to fail, right? You can begin your day that way in the scripture. Have a specific strategy of what you want to cover. I've got a good one. How about reading the Bible in a year? That'd be a good plan. In fact, we've got these nice, nice little pamphlets out there. with got all of the, the sections. It's all laid out for you. The date, what to read. It's all right there. It's all, all uh, ready to go. So... There's a suggestion. Catch a theme this morning. <laughs> we want to encourage you in that. So we've we've put together a plan. It's laid out for you. And even though that plan, if you look in here, there's little boxes to check. Remember, the goal isn't checking the boxes and, and meditating, right? When you do your reading, let me encourage you to do something. And guys, you're going to hate me for this. I hated it for years until I finally started doing it. As you're reading, have a little journal. Yeah. Have a little journal. Don't write a lot. I usually just write a few sentences. But what I do is, as I'm reading my, my time in the Word, I'm asking myself a couple of questions. One is, what does this show me about God? And the second is, what, what's something here that I need to consider and look at in my own life? And then I just write a few sentences, not very much. And what that does then is, that as I write those few things that I'm thinking about, and then the last thing that I write is the beginning of my prayer. I allow that time to usher me into a time of prayer. And, you know, that has really done wonders for me in focusing my attention as I'm reading. Because I'm thinking about, I'm going to be talking to God about this in a minute. Open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your law, Lord. And then as I look, try to do that. And then I talk to God about it. Have a Bible retreat where you get away for a day with just the Bible. Get together with other believers. We talked about that a minute ago. Share what you're learning and being challenged by. You know, we've got lots of small groups here. Amen, Brother Don. A lot of small groups. We've got fellowship groups, Bible studies, many opportunities that were provided as a church in order to get us around people to be focused on His Word. And probably the most important aspect to continual meditation on the Word of God is to commit it to memory. 
Since we can't have a Bible in front of us all the time, we need to memorize it. Now, if you're thinking, okay, I've tried that before. This would be way too much for me to be able to do. My memory is shot. It's not very good. I have trouble memorizing things. But, beloved, don't let any of these be an excuse not to try again. Because the issue is not the amount. The issue is the effort. The issue is being faithful. In fact, look at Joshua 1.8 for me with a minute. It's a fascinating passage. It's always interested me. Joshua 1.8. Here's where the Israelites were encamped in the land of Moab. They were preparing to enter the land. God was going to lead them through Joshua to enter into the land. And to do that, though, God said, I'm going to give you the promised land, but you're going to have to battle for it. You're going to have to take it in battle. So many battles lie ahead of them. But notice what God tells Joshua and how they are to prepare for those battles. Starting in Joshua 1, verse 6, he says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be very strong and courageous. This was a running theme. God had told Joshua, it makes sense, right? To, to, don't be fear, don't be afraid, be courageous, enter the land, I'll be with you, trust me. But then notice what God says next. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall what? Meditate on it day and night. That sounds familiar. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Okay, what was the battle plan? Did you catch it? As God is speaking to Joshua after encouraging him to be bold and courageous and go forth. What tactical strategies does God then cover with him? Does he go over a battle plan? I find this interesting. What does he tell Joshua? Joshua, what I want you to concentrate on, what I want you to focus on, what I want you to give your full attention to is to meditate on my word and be committed to to follow it. That's what I want for you to do as you enter the land. It was so important to God, not for them to know how to fight, but for them to know his word. Some of the greatest experiences of growth I've had in my walk with Christ is when I made memorization and meditating on his word from that, a focus of my time in scripture. And yes, memorizing takes effort. It is work. At times it can seem dry or academic, as you're repeating something over and over, trying to get it to embed on those uh, diminishing neurons. But listen, if the Word of God is your delight, would you not want it at the ready to recall, to ponder, and think about? Would you not want it to come to your mind when you're in those situations of temptation? Would you not want it to come to you as the Spirit works through what you have meditated on to help you deal with situations and struggles in your life? Don't we memorize lyrics to songs we like and then recall them later and, and sing them? How much more valuable would it be to have God's own instruction and his words in our heart? You know, if we knew of a great treasure to be had, would we not sacrifice much to obtain it? You know, I think about that guy, right? He's, he gets home, sitting in his bed, and it comes to the middle of the night. I think I've got the winning ticket. Now it's the middle of the night. I know about you, but it takes a lot for me to get up. I'm thinking, you know, he's, oh, I can check in the morning. 
But he doesn't do that. He leaps out of bed. He runs over to his dresser and he he skirmishes through all of the stuff on his dresser and he finds it. Now, why was he so excited? He's going to get up in the middle of the night immediately and run to go figure out and see if he's got that ticket. What motivated him to do that? A big treasure. Yeah, what did he end up with? hundred something million bucks after taxes? Which makes me wonder if half of 636 is 318. How did he end at 120? <clears throat> anyway, that's something else. But right, he was motivated and he, he made effort because he knew a treasure was waiting for him. There's a treasure <laughs> waiting for us, isn't there? Are not the riches of God's word worth 15 minutes a day, not just to read it, but to, to hide it in our heart. You know, I encourage you, put it on note cards and stick them in your bathroom. You know, sometimes you're doing things in there, you're just sitting around and, you know, you have a little card and you can remind yourself and review. Put them in your car. Moms, if you're doing a lot of taxiing around, have them in your car. Same with your kids. I'm so grateful to my wife who made that a commitment when my kids were growing up. Right, Hannah? They'd be reciting verses. You know, when they're young, it sticks in there a lot better than when, they're, when you're older. And they still remember those verses. I quiz Hannah on Exodus 20 later. No, but it's, there's opportunity to memorize Scripture in the course of life. And you know what that does, too? It's continually feeding in the Word so that you're able to meditate on it. And again, the issue is not how much you memorize, but are you faithful to make the effort? I remember... Uh, I was involved in youth ministry. I'm going to all these camps. And we'd often encourage the kids to memorize verses. And we'd give them incentives to do that. And there was one uh, kid in particular that he, the, he had really struggled with memorizing things. The way his brain was wired, it just was very difficult for him to retain information. And I would encourage him each year to try. And then eventually one year, I said, no, just try it. You can do it. And so... He worked at it. By the end of camp, he'd memorized John 3.16. And I'll never forget, as he's quoting me that verse, the tears in his eyes, as God blessed him for his effort to memorize that passage and the impact it had on him. And I know this, as you really focus time and effort and attention to God's Word and meditate on it, that it will cultivate in your heart the cry of the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Not only does meditating on God's word lead to desiring it and delighting in it. But delight in meditation leads to something else. And that's where verse 3 of Psalm 1 takes us. What does it produce? We've looked at the pursuit of the righteous in verses 1 and 2. Let's consider now briefly the prize of the righteous in verse 3. He says there, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The righteous who seek God through his word are described here as what? What is the picture that he presents? It's a tree, right? It's a tree that he describes being firmly planted by streams of water. Now that the verb tense there, or the aspect of the verb is passive, meaning he didn't plant himself, but he was planted. He was planted by God. And God planted that tree, not in a dry wasteland, not by some uh, trickling brook. He plants the tree by streams or channels overflowing with water. And it is there that God puts him. And as a result, this tree is a very productive tree. Notice he says that it yields its fruit in its season. 
That just means it yields fruit at the right time, at the expected time. Its yield is regular, constant, predictable. I remember my grandfather, every year he would get this uh, book called The Farmer's Almanac. I don't know if you've heard of it, but inside of it, it would have like the expected weather patterns by region for the year, when to plant certain crops and when to harvest them. You probably have a bookcase full there in Kansas, right? Yeah, it's a suggested reading for everyone there. But, uh, you know, as I think about that almanac, you know, the harvest times that it would predict were very predictable unless uh, some unexpected change in weather took place that year. Psalm 1 here is describing a healthy and productive tree that yields its crop at the expected time every year, no matter what happens. It would follow the farmer's almanac without fail. This tree shows no signs of decay, no signs of poor health. It says that its leaf does not wither. The picture here is of a, a full evergreen tree, an evergreen that produces fruit. It's a wonderful picture. It shows vitality and health. So if you step back from this picture a minute, the the poet here has painted one for us. He wants us to have an image in our minds, an image of a person who is the righteous, the one who delights in the word and meditates on it day and night. But what is the intent of this picture? What does it mean? What's he trying to communicate? Is there some secret message in here? No, he's a, he's a painter right now. And he's showing us a portrait. And on that portrait, he's describing a fruitful, stable, productive thriving tree and he says that tree is the righteous person being nourished by the streams of god's word and he mentions fruit here and i don't think he's referring to good works though that would certainly be a a part of the righteous person but i think he's indicating fruit being produced here to show that this is a strong tree that this tree is healthy that this tree is doing what it was supposed to do it is stable it is productive no matter what is going on around it It's a tree that withstands the storms of life, that overcomes the freezing cold of sin. It's a tree that endures the dry seasons of trials. A tree that flourishes no matter what is going on around it. No matter the environment. No matter the conditions of the weather. This is a tree that is stable and blessed. It is a stable and blessed life that he's picturing here. The psalmist summarizes this at the end of verse 3. When he says, in whatever he does, he prospers. I don't think the focus here is on physical prosperity, but it is that inner prosperity, that inner contentment, that peace, the stability of having a secure life, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Spurgeon says, it is not outward prosperity which the Christian most desires and values. It is soul prosperity which he longs for. And it is that soul prosperity The key to that that the psalmist gives us here, the key to happiness, the key to joy, the key to peace and contentment, the key to endure any situation that comes. And that key is obtained how? How? We've been talking about it. Passion and pursuit of God's word. I would ask, does this tree describe you? I mean, he's given us the answer here. He's told us the path in order to have that kind of stable and content and secure life. Does that tree describe you? Are you spiritually productive, thriving, healthy, stable? How do you handle trials? Are you content and secure? Do you have an inner joy and peace no matter what's going on around you? 
Or are you struggling constantly with certain sins in your life? Does anxiety or stress or discontent describe you? You know, I've talked to many people over the years, including myself, who struggle with various sins or perhaps perhaps aren't handling a trial very well. And almost every time when I ask them, how's your time in God's word going? What do you think they tell me? A lot of times they're silent. You know, if someone's life doesn't reflect the stability and vitality of the tree that the psalmist describes here, then they are not likely pursuing the path of the blessed that he has revealed in verses 1 and 2. But you know what? When that person makes effort to have quality time with the Lord, he or she begins to see victory over sin. And you know, this was imprinted in my mind, I think, so vividly. Um, Many years ago in Idaho, there was a man I used to run with, and he... Right in the middle of a running, one time he just blurts out, I hate my wife. Well, that stopped our exercise right there. And we started talking, and um, I realized I, I got to try to help this guy. We, my wife and I had never counseled a couple before, but we just, I mean, to me that was a cry for help. Wouldn't you say so? And I didn't know what to do. But I said, you know what? At least we can spend time in the Word together. You know, we got a book, Exemplary Husband, which is really helpful. And especially in the initial chapters, he focuses attention on relationship with God and time with him. And you know what? Over the course of the next couple of months where we really didn't get to the specific issues going on in their marriage, things started getting better. His heart was being changed. Just his time in the word was doing that. Now, I'm not trying to oversimplify things and just saying if you have problems, read your Bible. But that's where you start. That provides the foundation to give you the wisdom and the encouragement, and the understanding, the security and stability in order to deal with those situations in your life. Blew me away to see the transformation that it had in this couple. Again, when you make that quality time with the Lord a priority, you will experience the peace in the midst of trial, the wisdom to know what to do. But we can't leave this psalm without heeding the warning. He gives a warning in the last three verses of the psalm. As I mentioned at the beginning, this psalm describes two paths in life. There's the path of the righteous that leads to the stable and secure life as you seek and desire God's word. And then there's the path of the wicked. Notice he says in verse 4, Not so the wicked. They aren't like this tree that I've just described. Rather, they are like the chaff. And what is chaff? What is it? Right? That the husks of the grain, that, that's the light that falls to the ground, that a, a, a very small breeze could blow away. There's no security in that, right? There's no root in the ground. Chaff is stuff that you get rid of. Chaff is stuff that cannot stand. And there are likely some here that do not have the root of stability or happiness or joy in the Lord in your life. You have no desire to know God to delight in His Word or to flee from your sin? If this is the case, you're never going to know true and lasting happiness and contentment. You're never really going to experience peace even in the midst of difficult times that come in life. Your life will never be like the stable tree, but as verse 4, it will be like the chaff, which has no stability. But friend, unhappiness and sorrow is not the biggest problem that faces you. The psalmist says here that those who reject God won't have a leg to stand on in the judgment. And then in verse 6, he 
gives the most devastating news of all when he said the Lord knows that is intimately is intimately acquainted with the path of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. And he's not just speaking of physical death there. That word has the idea of destruction. He's saying if you don't confess your sins, if you don't confess them to Christ and seek the forgiveness that he offers, that he has paid for by his own blood on the cross and was shown to be accepted by the Father through his resurrection, if you don't uh, confess your sins, accept that, place your trust in him and in the work that he has done to provide for your forgiveness, And verse 6 says, you'll perish, which is an eternal separation from God in hell forever. The word know here in verse 6, again, is not know about. It is to have a relationship with. But there's still time. You're still breathing. There's time to receive His Son. To desire to turn from your sins. To to flee the verse 1. To be that guy that shuns evil desires to shun it and through the power of the Holy Spirit will be able to and then commit your life in faith to follow for the rest of your life the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all my brothers and sisters who are in Christ in here, let me say this. Let this year of the Bible here at Calvary be the year for you to renew again your passion for God and His Word. Ask God to use this commitment, this resolution to read through His Word meditatively to change and transform the course of your life. For commitment to delight in and meditate on the Word of God will have an amazing impact. Joshua 1.8, it talks about there that meditating on His Word day and night will bring about obedience to it. Or in Psalm 119.11, it teaches that the word will provide an escape for sin. I have hidden your word in my heart. I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or in Psalm 119, verse 92, it says it will bring you comfort in trials. Wasn't that long ago, there was a message that uh, I did on Psalm 119, specifically on that, where how he talked about over and over again that God's word is what brought him through the affliction and the trials in his life. That he was revived and strengthened and renewed through what God has said. Many of you know uh, Kendall Nichols. Uh, He was a part of this body for a number of years. Uh, His parents, Bruce and Leanne, uh, they've been missionaries to Brazil for most of their lives. Uh, They visited with us a few years ago when they were up here on furlough. It's a wonderful, godly couple. Have you met them, Dave? Bruce and Leanne? They're out in Kansas right now. They're in furlough there, actually, this year. And during their furlough, uh, one of their children, Caleb, got into an horrific auto accident. In fact, at the scene, he was, uh, he was described as dead. He survived, but he's still unconscious. He's in pretty bad shape in a hospital bed. And I've been in correspondence with Bruce, with Kendall, and I've been amazed at Bruce's response to all of this. Just amazed. In fact, let me read a portion of a letter he recently sent, an update that he sent a few days ago. I want you to hear what he has to say. We praise the Lord for giving us Caleb 19 and a half years ago. We praise the Lord for his mercies on Caleb's life. The news report of Caleb's car wreck stated he was a fatality. We praise the Lord for the immediate care Caleb received and that he was not left for dead. We praise the Lord that no one else in the wreck was hurt. 
We praise the Lord for the competent nurses and doctors and hospital staff that have been used of God to spare Caleb's life and keep him stable for over three weeks. We praise the Lord for our children, their spouses, our grandchildren who are daily with Caleb all around the clock. We praise the Lord for the church of Jesus Christ who has been God's arms and legs to hug us and pray with us, feed us and clothe us, give us a bed and a shower, visit us. We don't know the future for Caleb, but the Lord knows and we trust in him. We worship the sovereign Lord who in his providence works all things out for our good and his glory. For such a time as this, our good Lord has afflicted us for a purpose. That we might learn his statutes and worship him as he deserves in spirit and truth. For such a time as this, the Lord has brought us to the ICU waiting room, which has been our new mission field. The Lord has opened doors to pray with patience and sorrowing families and to proclaim the gospel story that the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ alone can cover our sin and give us a right standing with a just God. Now I ask you, how does a father in that situation write something like this? How does a dad whose son was nearly killed have this kind of an attitude? How does a man who looks upon his boy unconscious in a bed, his eye sewn shut so that his eyeball doesn't fall out because of the damage, who they found great brain damage within, they don't think that the two halves of the brain are connected to each other at this point. They're not sure if it can be rehabilitated. How can a man have peace and even joy in the midst of this? How can he have the strength to encourage strangers? And to pray with them and to share the gospel with them and to be concerned about what's going on in their situations. How can a man be so full of praise to God in the midst of this circumstance, not knowing what's going to happen to his boy? Because Bruce and his wife, Leanne, by God's grace, delight and meditate in God's word. If you know them, you know this to be true. They have committed and have a love for the scriptures that is infectious. He's a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for testimony of Bruce and Leanne, their family. We do want to pray for Caleb, Lord. Let's pray, God, that you would heal his body, heal his brain. Lord, that you would encourage his parents, encourage the family. Give them strength, Lord. They rely on you. They trust in you. Lord, thank you that, God, you have given them the peace and joy, even in the midst of this, Lord, the peace and joy that only comes through meditating and delighting in your word. God, I continue to pray for opportunities for them proclaim your good news. And I pray for us, Lord, as a church, God, that you would use us, Lord, to be salt and light to this community. Lord, that we would flee temptation, but that we would not flee our responsibility to share your good news. Lord, make this the year for Calvary Bible Church and all of us who are a part of it, Lord, to, to read through your word, to be committed to it. And Lord, use that to ignite a passion in us for you. And Lord, to, to have stable lives so that your son may be lifted up and exalted we pray all these things in his name amen